Hello fellow Kentuckians and other friends and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie and joining me as always is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? I'm doing well and it's Tuesday, not Wednesday. This is going to come out on Wednesday, but we're actually recording on Tuesday night. So if anything crazy happens between now and then, sorry we missed it. Um, we're recording tonight because it's the night that our guest, Dr. Tina Bojanowski, Representative Tina Bojanowski, uh, was able to join us to talk about, mostly about HB9. HB9 is the bill to fund charter schools that is making its way through the legislature. It hasn't yet received a vote, but it's imminent, we think. Um, and she has been working really, really hard to educate people about what the problems are with it, including the public and including her, her, uh, you know, colleagues there in the house. And she talked to us extensively. It's a very long interview, but it's really good. I mean, she talked to us a lot about the issues around charter schools broadly and around charter schools in this bill. So definitely listen, check on, check that out. Um, yeah, I mean, Jasmine, uh, it was your idea to do this. I think it was a great one. How did you think it, it went? Yeah, I thought it went really well. I heard her talk about this in Frankfurt a couple weeks ago and learned a lot that I didn't know. So I thought it would be beneficial for everybody else to learn even more about House Bill 9. Yeah, absolutely. And we talked to her about some other stuff, too. Uh, I did not realize we had not talked to her since she was a candidate. And of course, yeah, we haven't. Yeah, she's been in, in uh, you know, in the legislature for, for now three sessions. Uh, so so she's learned a lot since the last time she said that before we went on. She said, I think I've learned a ton since I was last on here. So that was really good to just kind of catch up with her about that kind of stuff. So because that interview was really long. We're just going to talk about a few things in this first part of the bill. Jasmine's going to do uh, an update about some criminal justice bills. I think you're going to be talking about like three or four different bills that are kind of making their way through um, the legislature. And then I'm going to talk to us about maybe the last COVID update. So, you know, without any further ado, Jasmine, go ahead and start talking to us about these criminal justice bills. All right. So last week we talked to Marcus Jackson from the ACLU and That was a really great interview, so if you missed that one for some reason, you should definitely listen to it. But we talked to him about persistent felony offender laws. So what those are are incredibly harsh sentencing enhancements that have the potential to double someone's sentence, basically, um, if they have a prior felony. It's a lot more complicated than that, um, but the two most likely ways like someone qualifies for PFO, that's the acronym for it that we call it um, are picking up a felony within five years of release from incarceration or from a prior felony or picking up a felony while on some kind of post incarceration supervision. Um, And then there there's first degree and there's second degree that have different penalties. Marcus talked to us about how bad those laws are. um, But we actually have a few bills filed this session that would reform PFO laws that I wanted to highlight. Um, So Senate Bill 33, this one is sponsored by Senators Storm and Southworth. Um, So both Republicans. So that bill would allow juries to decide whether a case warrants a PFO sentence enhancement. So right now, the prosecution has the choice to charge someone with PFO Um, and then if they're convicted, the jury has to enhance the sentence, you know, they, and so, um, this would allow juries to have discretion to apply the sentencing enhancement or not. Um, it would also only allow PFO when the prior conviction is from the same chapter of the criminal code. So for example, like drug possession offenses are in a different chapter than violent offenses or sex crimes. And so um, you can't enhance 
a sex crime with a prior child support felony or something like that. Um, and so I think that that would actually limit this quite a bit. And, and it makes a little bit more sense because if we're, if we're worried about persistent felonies, we're most likely worried about the people like committing the same types of offenses, right? Not someone who has a flagrant non-support from five years ago who then picks up a drug offense some years later. Yeah. It seems like the this idea kind of makes PFOs about what they were supposed to be about in the first place. I mean, I think right. they're kind of a bad idea in, in general and like just judges and juries should have discretion over these kinds of things. But if you're going to have a persistent felony offender statute, this kind of makes a little bit more sense. You had mentioned, Jasmine, that, that it's mostly just a threat that like prosecutors and, and police can kind of hang over people. So yeah, but I mean, it's utilized. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But no, I mean, it would it would kind of get rid of some of that. Maybe I, I yeah. don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it, it would, you know, when someone has a case that may be worth taking a trial where there might be a forced plea because of that PFO indictment, you know, there might be people who are more willing to take their chances at trial um, if a jury has discretion, if the ability to, like, have the PFO conviction is somewhat limited. So the next one is Senate Bill 379, and this one is just sponsored by... Um, Senator Storm, this one is an even stronger bill, I think. So it it includes the, the jury discretion from Senate Bill 333, um, but it also gets rid of that five-year look-back period that I talked about. So one of the most common ways that someone becomes a PFO is picking up a felony within five years of release from incarceration, and it gets rid of that. And so the part that remains is picking up a new felony while on some kind of post-incarceration supervision. Um, so it, it gets rid of a whole category there. It would also prohibit first-time drug possession from counting as a strike. Um, and so that eliminates a lot of um, people who might qualify, maybe not a lot, but it certainly eliminates some people who may qualify for one drug offense when they were 19 or, or something like that. Um, and it also expands parole eligibility for people who have their sentences enhanced as a PFO as long as the crime isn't a violent offense or a sex crime. So the PFO statute has really terrible <laughs> parole eligibility. And so um, this would expand it a little bit as for people with A, B, and C felonies that aren't violent or sex crimes. This, this probably applies to less people. A lot of the people who go to trial and get convicted of persistent felony offender. Like, do you have violent offenses? Cause there's a lot of offenses included in the violent offender statute. Um, but it is something that would be helpful to expand parole eligibility for some people who might qualify for the sentence enhancement. Yeah, th this is really interesting, Jasmine. So, I mean, these are two bills that I think you've targeted as, as pretty, pretty good reforms, maybe not perfect, but, but th certainly steps in the right direction that are both, uh, sponsored by uh, Senator Brandon Storm, who we talked about very briefly in the 2022 election. It's his first term. And I remember it being a very strange election because he had some very, very interesting 
commercials uh, where he was like super pro Trump and he was like, I'm going to fight the socialists and the, the leftists and the gun grabbers and et cetera. And it was they were very, very Trumpy, uh, his commercials. But at the same time, the KEA um, and their, their political arm had like given him the max contribution. And I was like, these are signals that seem to be moving in opposite directions. Um, hmm. so it is just really interesting. I mean, that this guy who se- <laughs> seemed pretty crazy yeah. in his commercials, um, turns out to be uh, pretty decent on criminal justice. So, um, using his Trump powers for good, I guess. So, uh, good for him, I guess. Yeah. And, and then the last bill is Senate bill 380. It's sponsored by Robin Webb, who is a Democrat, um, and that one includes that like jury discretion provision, and then it eliminates second degree PFO. The difference between second degree and first degree, second degree is like one prior felony and first degree is two. Um, so this gets rid of that second degree. And so that would be a really good bill as well. Um, and so those are the three bills that we have. They were all filed, you know, close to the the filing deadline. And, and I don't really think that anything is going to happen within this session, but it, it seems like a really good like start to the conversation for me. And I, I know that Senator Whitney Westerfield, who's the chair of the Judiciary Committee, hasn't really supported any major reform to PFO statutes. But if we can get the conversation started and talk about some reforms, you know, maybe maybe we get one of these passed next time. Yeah, it seems to me like Senator Westerfield... Um, it may not be the best on these issues, but also seems like he's w- willing to be pushed on some of the criminal justice reforms. Uh, he, he definitely is. And he's been really supportive of some really good criminal justice reforms. And, I mean, he was like the biggest driver of making youthful offender transfer discretionary instead of mandatory. Yeah. And so um, in, in certain cases. And yeah. so. You know, I think he would be open to listening, maybe. And, you know, these these are coming these bills are coming from his Republican colleagues. And so um, I think that's this is a good start to a a PFO reform conversation for sure. Yeah, he certainly seems willing to listen on some of these and and the the power of stories seem to affect him on this issue. I really wish he was a little bit more persuadable on the issue of abortion where he's absolutely terrible. But uh, you know what? I guess he can't have everything. So uh, we'll we'll see where we end up with his PFO stuff uh, in the next year or so. Yeah. And then the other thing I want to talk about is not so good. Um, It's a new juvenile justice bill. It's House Bill 318. It's sponsored by Kevin Bratcher. And House Bill 318 would require juveniles charged with a violent felony to be detained until a detention hearing. And it also allows judges to order parents to, t- to um, comply with court orders to like take children to like counseling and appointments and things like that. So here's what I'll say about this right off the bat. Like most of this already happens. <laughs> so um, judges already order parents to enroll children in counseling and mental health services or substance abuse counseling. Like that is something that already happens. If the parents don't do that, the court can move to hold them in contempt. And so that already happens. Um, The other part of it requires juveniles charged with a violent felony to be detained until detention hearing. I would say that usually happens, but not all the time. And I I think this is one of those things where there's maybe, maybe good intention here. I don't know. But to 
hold someone until there's more information or a risk assessment done um, until there can be a bond hearing when the charges are serious. You know, I don't know. I assume those are the reasons <laughs> for something like this, but it also encompasses less culpable children. So someone who may be charged with something that's considered a violent felony, like a robbery, but they stayed in, they stayed in the car and, and didn't get out of the car and rob anybody, or they were just there. Um, they didn't have the gun, you know, so children who had a small role, accomplice role, it also encompasses. So I think this would encompass sex offenses and this sounds strange but typically a lot of juveniles charged with sex offenses if they aren't particularly violent are out of custody because they're often already removed from it if it happened in like a family setting they're already removed from the home or the family where it happened and they're placed in a foster home or a treatment center or um, and even like higher security, like state cabinet type placement, or even in like a mental health inpatient facility. And so a lot of times these children who are out of custody, usually while these types of charges are pending, would have to be detained until a detention hearing. And so um, I think even though a lot of children are already detained for violent felonies until a detention hearing and even long after. Um, this would apply to cases that uh, we we wouldn't normally detain children for. Yeah, Jasmine, I mean, to me, it sounds like the problems that we talked about last week with, with Marcus Jackson were kind of around the idea that, like, judges and juries are the point in the court system where decisions need to be made. I mean, where they can take into account all of the facts of a case and decide what the best thing to do is for everybody. And like this, like SB 333, SB 379 and SB and SB 380 all kind of move towards, you know, making that more the case. And this HB 318, uh, the juvenile one is moving in the other direction, taking the decision mm -hmm. out of the hands of, of courts, taking the decision out of judges, out of juries, uh, and, and putting it in the hands of the legislature who are making just a, a blanket proclamation. That sounds good, written on a piece of paper. Violent children, sexually violent children um, are, are required to be detained. Like, yeah, okay, I mean, yeah, absolutely. But when you actually dig into what the details of how that, what the implications are for all children, um, you know, and how these charges sometimes work. Um, it's not always the best case. And in fact, is really harmful for children, for parents and for communities. And there's not any wiggle room. Um, yeah. And, like, and like another example, sometimes there may, it may take a while to investigate a crime and a person may be out of custody, not committing new crimes for a long period of time while the crime is being in investigated and then they get charged several months later and, and now they're detained, you know, even though the, they've been out of custody, not picking up any new charges. And, and, you know, that's that's not really what like bond, you know, that's not why we detain people pretrial. Right. Um, and so um, that that's my problem with that part of the bill. It also makes some changes to truancy cases. And then I think perhaps the worst part of it is that it also removes confidentiality for violent felonies. Um, and even the ones that are handled in juvenile court. And I think this is really bad because, I mean, 
it removes their ability to do well in the community. If if a child remains in juvenile court, that means it wasn't a serious enough charge to be transferred to adult court and go to prison. So it means they're going to be back in the community not long after. It, it means they're probably going to get some kind of treatment or probation. Um, they may go to a juvenile facility for some time, but they're, they're going to be back out in the community. And if we remove that confidentiality, they may be kicked out of their schools. They may not be able to get a job. And, and my experience being a juvenile attorney, like the kids that thrived were the ones who were able to like find jobs and have, have some kind of like positive social activity. And if we remove that confidentiality, I think that really hinders them from being able to do that. Um, So that is a really bad part of the bill. Yeah. Juvenile justice is such a fraught situation just because you're dealing with people whose whole lives should be in front of them and cutting their lives off and giving and and removing the the ability for them to overcome bad things that they've done or bad things that have happened to them um when they're that young is just really really hard if this bill's gonna pass i would i would really hope that 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 part would be taken out um Mm -hmm. because i i think that i think that is the worst part of it um but it did pass the house on monday it's in the senate now um so i do it does seem like this one's likely to make it through yeah we'll we'll see i mean we we talked a little bit about the senate judiciary committee already um i guess that's probably where this bill's gonna land i don't know if it's been assigned yet but uh yeah that's that's a place where something like uh a change like that might get made so we'll see we'll see all right, Jasmine, uh, I did want to do p- potentially our final COVID update, uh, and we'll get into why in, in, in just a second. So the governor announced on Monday that this week was going to be his final weekly COVID update unless case counts started increasing substantially. Of course, he said this once before, almost a year ago, right before the Delta wave hit. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so at that time, we knew Delta was on the horizon. Um, but of course, we had no idea what it meant. Uh, and, and, you know, we had a sense that it was going to increase cases. We did not have a sense that it was going to increase its cases by as much as it did and increase deaths by as much as it did. But of course it did. Uh, and so we went back to having very regular COVID updates from the governor. We'll see what happens this time. Governor Bashir spent a large amount of time during this, you know, his last weekly press conference, potentially um, criticizing SJR 150. SJR 150 would end Kentucky's state of emergency. Um, the resolution was passed, uh, you know, pretty early in uh, March after very little, if any, discussion by the legislature in either the House or the Senate. So after the resolution was passed, the Bashir administration clarified that ending the state of emergency would put $50 million in SNAP benefits at risk, which equates to about a drop of $100 for each recipient each month. So literally taking food out of the mouths of people um, just to end uh, the state of emergency. In addition, the governor criticized the lack of COVID funds ex- uh, expended in the legislature's budgets. So, you know, we have SJR 150, which eliminates a lot of federal funding. And then also we just didn't spend any of the money in the state budgets. He, he said that the state couldn't fund the, you know, if, if none of this funding was approved, he said that the state couldn't fund the test to stay program for schools. It couldn't fund the community antibody administration program, which does the monoclonal an- antibodies, um, you know, in those clinics. 
it, it, uh, the state could no longer do community testing through gravity diagnostics. I've taken advantage of that in Louisville here three or four times uh, during exposures during Omicron. And, and it also couldn't do community testing in long-term care facilities. And in addition, the 90-day emergency PPE supply um, would, would go away without this COVID funding that he has asked for in the budget. So the COVID fundraising or the COVID funding is, uh, you know, available for the from the federal government. This is like coming in from ARP and stuff uh, and really only needs to be appropriated. Uh, the governor's budget does this, uh, but the legislature's budgets do not. It just leaves it unappropriated for no good reason. At the time of the passage of SJR 150, which is, again, that that's the legislation that ends the state of emergency, the GOP said that they didn't think that the resolution would put any federal funds at risk and that they didn't believe Kentucky was in a state of emergency any longer. Um, that's <laughs> Take that for what you want. States of emergency do typically mean that executives have special powers, and that's probably the reason why the Republicans wanted to get rid of it, because they do not like Governor Bashir having any more power um, than they can stand for him to have. But it also means that the federal government provides additional funds if you're in a state of emergency. So eliminating it may reduce the governor's powers marginally, but it reduces the amount of federal funds that are available to Kentuckians substantially. Um, so that's basically the decision the Republicans are making, reducing the governor's power by a little bit at the price um, of reducing federal funding by quite a bit. Governor Bashir is likely to veto SJR 150, and I think he's working hard to make it more of a political issue than it was when it actually passed. And, and it will be up to the legislature whether or not to veto or override the governor's veto. So far, in Governor Bashir's term, they've overridden every single one of his vetoes. Um, we will see if that holds true for SJR 150. Okay, regarding the state of COVID in Kentucky, it appears that cases are continuing to drop, and uh, most of our state's map is now yellow and orange, which is between 1 and 25 cases per 100,000 population, although there are still a few red counties, which are more than 25 cases per 100,000 in eastern Kentucky, and then Crittenden County, which is along the Ohio River in western Kentucky, um, is also in the red. Louisville has seen three weeks of cases around 1,100, which is a lot lower than what it was just a couple months ago. That's good enough for Kentucky to be in the green zone regarding the CDC, the new CDC metrics, and I think yellow for the state's old version of the map. Hospitalizations continue to fall rapidly, now decreasing to where to below where the delta low was, and still falling pretty quickly. And, and then ICU utilization is about where it was during the early parts of last summer. So we've gone way below the delta low and actually down into like the, where we were in May 2020. Uh, May 2021, um, and, and that's also still falling. So, so that's good. You know, our hospital utilization metrics are going down quite a bit, but vaccinations are also dropping. We're about 65 and a half percent of our population that's been vaccinated. However, you know, on the bright side of this, everybody over the age of 65 basically is vaccinated. 97 percent of people between 65 and 74 are vaccinated, and 93 percent of people older than 74 have been vaccinated, which is, you know, that's really good. Those are the people who are the most at risk, and it does appear that they have been vaccinated. The group who lags the most are young people. No cohort younger than 25 is more than 60% vaccinated. Now, of course, vaccination works really, really, really well to reduce the risk of just about everybody, um, but the risk is so much higher in older folks that a lot of older folks who are vaccinated are still dying, um, and they're getting it from people who are younger who, uh, you know, aren't vaccinated. So that's a real problem. Even if you don't think you are at risk, 
you should get vaccinated for everybody else. So the state has actually ceased its daily reporting of COVID-19 statistics. Um, and I really haven't been able to figure out what they're doing for weekly reporting. I don't think it's coming out in the same sort of format. So I don't know how it's going to come in the future. So, you know, I, I don't see us doing much more COVID updating unless something changes significantly. So this is likely the last COVID update. Are you sad about that, Jasmine? N- not really. <laughs> Yeah, that's fair. We've been doing it. I mean, we've been doing it like exactly two years. Yeah. This week. Yeah. Seems like a good time. And to it's retire. not that we don't care about it any longer. It's or it's not that we're like moving on. It's just that like the data is kind of not there for us anymore. And, and we we do have other things to talk about. <laughs> it's very true. It's very true. Yeah. I mean, it still is a huge story. It still is a huge issue. I, I think it's still top of mind for a lot of people. Um, but certainly much, much lower for priority than it was two years ago, uh, and, and lower than it was even just a couple months ago in the midst of the Omicron surge. So yeah, yeah, that's, I guess that is good. All right. Well, that's it for this part of the show. Let's get to our interview with Tina Bojanowski. Dr. Tina Bojanowski is a member of the Kentucky house where she represents part of Eastern Jefferson County. Dr. Bojanowski is a special education teacher with Jefferson County Public Schools and has also served on the board of directors for the National Alliance on Mental Illness and has served at the Jefferson County Teachers Association in different capacities in the past. She graduated from Louisville Central High School and the University of Louisville and received her PhD from Bellarmine Universities. Dr. Bojanowski has been a gymnastics coach in her life and has two sons and a daughter. We asked her to join us specifically to talk about House Bill 9, which is a bill that she strongly opposes. So, you know, Dr. Tina Bojanowski, welcome back to my old Kentucky podcast. Thank you. This is my second appearance on my old Kentucky podcast. And I mean, I I know so much more than the last time I was here. I (laughs) think I was just a candidate. Yeah, you were a candidate last time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely been a while and we're happy to have you back. And I wanted to have you on because I heard you talk in Frankfurt recently and um, you talked a little bit about House Bill 9, which is a bill to fund charter schools. And this subject is kind of confusing to people who might not follow the legislature closely or as closely as we do. You know, we legalized charter schools a few years ago, but none of them have appeared anywhere yet. So Tell us just about the current state of charter schools in Kentucky and how House Bill 9 would change that. Okay, so we passed a a bill to allow charter schools in 2017, right before I came into the General Assembly. It was House Bill 520. And I think at that time there was a little bit of funding but then by the time anyone would have been ready to apply, there there was no funding. So essentially there wasn't a long-term funding mechanism. So, you know, each year we're like, oh, I wonder if they're going to do charter schools on pins and needles. <laughs> and then, you know, they don't. And so this year I started hearing people say things about charters in committee meetings. You know, they would say, da-da-da-da-da, charter. And I'm like, okay, my little, you know, my little spidey sense peaked up and I'm like, they're talking about charters. So combine that with the budget surplus um, and probably with their frustration that House Bill 563 last year is stuck in court, um, I kind of figured we'd hear a a charter bill. So um, on the last day of filing, um, Chad McCoy filed House Bill 9. 
and it's always kind of frightening um, once you start knowing about this is, is if it's numbered one through 10, these are priority bills. And, you know, 563, sure, yeah, it's some big number, but House Bill 9, I'm like, oh, crap, here we go. So right before I saw the bill, I started doing a little bit of searching and I dug into the um, the ethics department, they have a list. And anytime someone comes to lobby in the state of Kentucky, they have to register with a lobbyist. Um, and so that's public information. You know, we get a weekly printout or a, a, a document on it, but I think anybody can look online to find that. And so I've been learning about charter schools for the last, since I started becoming a teacher 13 years ago. Um, I started reading Diane Ravitch's books and, um, you know, learning about the dynamics of charter schools and um, vouchers and the intent to privatize public education. Um, so it's very concerning to me. Um, so I discover this group called National Heritage Academies is registered to lobby in Kentucky. So I look them up. It's not just a charter school. What they are is a for-profit charter management organization. So just, just very simply. So I'll, I'll start out with what is a charter school? All right. So a charter school is a public school. The design of charter schools was to try to allow schools to take away all these different requirements we put on schools so that they could be more innovative. And, and, you know, it's a good idea. All right, so you become more innovative. But what we would have ended up with, with the bill as it is today, we would end up with just a tsunami. That's what the, the op-ed says, a tsunami of charter schools. Because the bill that we had written looked like, and to a, a national expert on this, um, I'm working with the Network for Public Education, um, this bill to her looked like it was made for the for-profit charter organizations and that they would just be drooling over it, you know, to come in. And I'll explain how it works. Does that all make sense so far? Yes, it does. Okay. All right. So if, if you know, okay, you know, public education, I'll just kind of do a very basic overview of what charter schools are if a listener doesn't know. So a charter school is then a public school that isn't a part of the local school district. So if we had a charter in Jefferson County, it would not be a part of Jefferson County Public Schools, but it would be a public school for which you wouldn't have to pay tuition, you know, no tuition. Mm -hmm. So a charter school, there are lots of states with a lot of charter schools. In fact, the city of New Orleans is completely charters. Mm -hmm. They like pulled all the traditional public schools out. Now, the charter people like to call them public charter schools, just so that we remember that even though they're trying to privatize education, there are public charter schools. And, and I'll explain a little more about why that happens. Um, okay, so a charter school. So if we ended up with a charter school in Jefferson County, students would apply. It's open enrollment. So there isn't supposed to be um, there isn't supposed to be any requirement like our magnets about grades or um, 
you know, capacity as a student. Um, I, I don't see anything in here that talks about how the charter school can or can't accept any students. Um, it does say if there are more than the capacity that you would do a lottery. And so any child could get in conceivably and they're supposed to follow special education rules and laws. Okay, so that sounds great. Well, here's what's problematic about it. So at charter school, in the same way that um, unfortunately our magnet schools do, is they tend to counsel out. So counsel out was a term um, that someone I talked to had no idea what it means. And I'm, I'll explain. So counsel out means you're not kicking a kid out. But the family sits down with the counselor and they say, you know, this this placement just isn't working for your son. You know, you might want to take him back to the neighborhood public school. So that's counseling out. So they kind of sift out the kids who are, are, are more difficult to teach. Mm -hmm. And then it might be a similar situation if a child has a severe disability. OK, you know, we really can't accommodate that here. Um, you know, you might have to go. And then in, in some of the, um, there are some charter chains that are called no excuses and they have very strict behavior. Like I understand that the children in the no excuses sometimes have to sit with their hands folded and they have to track the teacher with their eyes. And if they don't, they get in trouble. Well, you know, a couple of my kids who come to my school, would never be able to do that. I mean, I don't think it's appropriate for any child, but you know, so the child misbehaves a little bit, nothing that would be even considered misbehavior, I think in, in a public school and they get suspended and they get suspended and they get suspended. And finally the parent is like, I just can't keep getting off work and picking up my child and they pull them out of the charter. And so that's what happens in, you know, and there could be some really amazing charter schools out there. Um, but oftentimes with charter schools, it's hit or miss. And I believe one in four closes within four and five years. So there's a lot of churn. So charter schools in general are concerning to me because I look at it like, why would we have to have a parallel education system with our public dollars that means that we don't have the economy of scale of principles. And it, it kind of is the same thing I think about having 171 districts in this state. It's, it's, it's kind of ridiculous in that you have a superintendent for a district. There are more than one district. There's more than one district that like Anchorage School that has a K through eight program and a superintendent. You know, there are tiny districts across the state. So we wouldn't have the economy as a scale. Um, for supports for all the different things that we support children for in JCPS. So, all right. So I'm doing a little research. I realized, oh my gosh, National Heritage Academies is a for-profit charter management organization. Start learning a little more like about that. Well, here's what happens with a lot of the contracts that this company does. They do what is called a 100% sweep contract. So National Heritage Academies, a private for-profit company, has a contract with um, the Jasmine Charter School. Jasmine Charter School says, National Heritage Academy, 
we're going to pay you everything that you do to run a school. So they get 100% of the money from the state swept through the charter school into the for-profit management company. The for-profit management company then leases a building, oftentimes from themselves, from another department where they have facility management. Um, they hire the staff, which that staff, those teachers would not work for Jefferson County Public Schools. They would not work for the state of Kentucky. They would not get TRS, state health and benefits, no you know, guarantees of sick days. They would be employees of the management organization based in Michigan. Um, they would decide the curriculum. Now, in our bill, it does say that they still have to follow the standards and they have to do the accountability testing. And also that the teachers have to be certified. So now think back, what did we do in education a few years ago? One that made no sense because it was no money tied to it. Well, some is that we quit requiring teachers to have a master's degree. What benefit did that have? Well, it meant schools paid less salary, lower salaries because they aren't having a master's degree on the tiers. Um, it also meant that charter schools wouldn't have to pay that. We eliminated KTIP. KTIP was a one-year coaching support sort of training program for teachers. When I came in 13 years ago, I went through KTIP. We don't have KTIP anymore. That was to set set the road for charter schools. So, um, so the teachers do have to be certified. So, all right. So you have this charter school management organization who now owns everything. They're building the equity in a facility, not the state, not the city, not the public school system. Um, they're making curricular decisions. You know, then the charter board really has the authority, but what these organizations do, because the charter board is appointed, if someone goes against the charter management company and they're like, well, we need to cut deals with them. This is not working out. Number one, they have nothing. All the assets, all the facility, all of that is, um, is in the charter management organization. And then the charter management organization often gets someone else appointed to that seat on the charter board. So that's very frightening. And that is something that is in the bill. It's not one of, one of my caucus members. She said, is this kind of theoretical that this is going to happen? And it's like, no, I've got a contract from this exact company, you know, saying, and it literally says 100% of the money, no matter what money, that a charter school may get. So say, you know, say there's a pandemic and we get a million dollars in federal funding, they'll get a proportional amount of that. Um, whatever money sweeps through to the charter management organization and whatever they have left over after they do what they're supposed to do is their profits. So now we have an organization that by design is the goal of any for-profit company is increase shareholder value. You know, rather than the goal, if a superintendent <coughs> comes into a school building or a district, they're like, how do I increase student achievement? How do I make students feel like they belong better? You know, so it's just almost antithetical to what I see as the goal of public education. However, 
it is not antithetical to the goal of privatizing education because this is the first step of getting, you know, that there's that that saying, you know, that public schools are a monopoly and all of this money, you know, this is a first step and, and the bill as it stands would just open our state up to these um, management organizations. So, so that's kind of the management organization. Do you want me to go through a couple of other parts of the bill? Um, Let, are- let's go ahead and move on to the next part, Jasmine. Yeah. So you filed five different floor amendments to yes. House Bill 9. And as a Democratic legislator, there, you know, it's kind of a certain art to a floor amendment. They will certainly be voted down, um, but they can help to point out specific problems that legislators might want to highlight. So tell yeah. us a, briefly about your floor amendments and, you know, what would they have changed about the bill? Okay, so I actually have seven and I filed another another one today. Okay, um, okay so just kind of real quickly, each of the floor amendments deals with something in the bill that I find highly problematic. Um, one, and I'll kind of jump through quickly. The, the first one, the contract that is in our bill as it's filed is that a charter school would be contracted for seven years. They'd get their charter. Three years is more common in the more, um, I don't want to say conservative states. And, and, you know, in the states that are more conservative about charter schools, we'll put it that way. Um, I'm hearing that there may be an amendment and we might be looking at five years. But, you know, it's just taking another look at, is this charter school doing what they're supposed to be doing? Um, The second one is in Ohio, charter schools are required to post their management organization contract, if they have one, um, in a public website. Um, there's some question whether the charter school would or wouldn't have any open record records. So I'm going to look into that. The third one was just a cap. So there, it was unlimited number of charter schools with a lot of different authorizers. So an authorizer is the organization that gets to grant the charter. Um, so my suggestion was to have five, you know, let's start with a certain number and see how it goes rather than allowing the state to blast open. Um, the fourth one was about contracting with nonprofit entities rather than for-profit. Um, and I did actually sat down with the sponsor today and went through each of my floor amendments. And some of them he said, you know, I'll kind of look into that. And some of them weren't concerning to him at all. Um I don't know that the the nonprofit charter management companies will go anywhere. Um, The next one was, okay, so the authorizer fee. So if you're an authorizer of a charter school, there were three new ways um, in in this bill that we could have authorizers. In the current current legislation statute, um, a school district or a mayor of a consolidated government consolidated government, which means Louisville. So the mayor of Louisville or Jefferson County Public Schools could authorize a charter. Lots of local control. In this bill, there are three different types of authorizers who would have statewide authorizing ability. So an authorizer, one is public and private universities. 
Um, so for example, um, Northern Kentucky University could authorize a charter school anywhere in the state that has a district of more than 5,000 students without that district's permission. All right. So the authorizer would then get a 3% cut off the top for oversight, which would then become a fundraising vehicle for very cash-strapped public universities. So the, the, this one kind of changed it to a 1%. Um, my other amendment, number six, was to get rid of all the statewide authorizers and just make it the local authorizers. Um, number seven, so the charter school board members are appointed. There is language in the bill that one, two have to be parents at the school. The rest don't even have to live in Kentucky. So these management organizations build up these boards and they manage, you know, and coordinate lots of different, different, um, different um charter programs. So, and then the one I filed today is that in the, in the charter contract, when you're, um, or in the application that you would have to do some sort of an impact of how that might impact the district that you're going into. Um, Representative Raymond has several interesting amendments. Um, she has one, she worked in a a school that was converted to a charter school in Indianapolis. And the charter school would stand at the grocery store, hand out gift cards for people who registered to go to the charter school. Wow. So one of her amendments is just that um, you can't offer financial incentives to get the kids to go to the charter school. Um, so that kind of leads me into a discussion about how they are funded. So what was important about this bill to the creation of charter schools is that they get funding. And so we're like, okay, well, then maybe they would get SEEK money. You know, we each get SEEK money. It's $4,000, give or take, depending on your local contribution. Oh, no. This bill has a proportional amount. So, you know, based on how many students you have, you get a proportional amount of the money sent to the district from federal, all federal all state and all local tax. So the only exception is you have some of these nickels that you have to raise for facilities. And I think there's something about bonded facilities that could come out first, but all other dollars go proportionately to the charter school. And there's concern from a lot of public school advocates that, you know, Section 180 of our Constitution basically says that if there's money that is raised for one thing, it can't be given out for something else. Mm -hmm. So the sponsor is not concerned about this. Um, I would assume that. So, so here's an example of what could happen. Say you have a, a charter school in Kenton County, Kentucky. Um, and at that charter school is done by a statewide authorizer who doesn't have to get the Kenton County approval to put the charter school in there. That charter school could recruit students from all the surrounding areas. And then that county would have to pay out of their own appropriations a percentage for all those students, including the ones who don't even live in Kenton County from their lo local state and federal tax dollars. So, yeah. 
so, so th- this has been a very good overview of the the policy that HB nine and the broader charter environment that the you know some of the folks in the Kentucky House want to build. Uh, so thank you very much for this. But before we move off of charter schools, I did want to ask just about the politics of it. And you mentioned at the beginning of this that we did have several attempts over the years to add funding to charter schools. And, you know, originally when charter schools went in, that was kind of the sticking point and, and of course, didn't get passed originally when, when this bill went through. So there obviously is some difficulty that the Republican caucus has had in getting the votes necessary. Obviously, this session includes a lot more Republicans than we've ever had before. So, I, right. you know, you've mentioned a lot of conversations that you've had with the sponsor. Obviously, you know, you've been front and center in the opposition of this bill. Um, what, Based on the conversations that you're having, do you feel like uh, – I mean, how do you feel about the, the prospects for this bill in the legislature this year? Do you feel – uh, like you, st- you, you, you've got a fighting chance to stop it or is it, is it, kind of- um, well, you know, that's kind of interesting because I don't think we're going to stop it, but, and I haven't seen a committee sub yet. I know there's one being developed and I think he's just like plucking out things to earn votes. Mm-hmm, right. So, um, you know, it might get watered down enough that, you know, the it only applies to schools with more than 5,000 students is to buy, you know, barter the votes for the small districts. Yeah. Um, you know, but then I keep trying to raise other points and not just me. There are a lot of advocates bringing up points that concern members of the rural districts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Athletics. Sure. Could be a big one. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, in the bill, as it's written right now. A child at a charter school that does not that does not have an athletics team, they go back to their district school to compete. But I can see in Kenton County, an, a statewide authorizer comes in and they build a wham bam Trinity High School of athletics and recruit from all across the district. So, yeah. so the politics of it um, are interesting because you know public education is so integral. To so many of these districts. Yeah. And it's the highest employer. Yeah. You know, and they like to design things that just impact Louisville. Mm-hmm. And yeah. there are a lot of conversations about, you know, the children in the West End need choice. Right. You know, yeah, they're not in the West End saying the children in the West End. Yeah. You know, there's a group of pastors who is advocating from West Louisville for charter schools. You know, and I just, I think JCPS is doing, you know, everything that it knows to do from an education perspective. Um, I don't know that charter schools will do that. But what it would do is it's just like our magnets. It's just like our traditional schools. It would it would give children a place that's more segregated. Mm-hmm. Well, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean. You know, say what you want to about the efforts that JCPS have made around children in the West End and whether or not you um, support or don't support some of the things they've done is kind of neither here nor there. I do think that having the money spent on attempts to make things better for children in the West End is probably a better use of the money than having it siphoned off and going towards charter management schools in Michigan. <laughs> so well, exactly, <laughs> that seems exactly. like a better option uh, than, than just giving it to folks in Michigan. Um, right. So yes, this this has been a really good discussion about HB9. So really appreciate 
uh, this, but we did want to ask you about some other things uh, tonight. Um, so, you know, um, moving on a little bit, you know, we've we've been talking to several of your colleagues um, about uh, their new districts. And, yes. you know, of course, we've gone through redistricting here um, in, yes, in Kentucky. Yes, and thank you for all your maps that you've done. They've been <laughs> so helpful. Yeah, it's been kind of wild how, how little information they thought they were going to get away with giving us. But, you know, uh, you know, you you ran tough races in 2018 where mm-hmm. you defeated an incumbent. And then, and then in 2020, you beat back a challenger. Both of those races were within 10 points. Uh, you know, you, you did better than a lot of other folks um, in similar districts. But, but you know, they weren't blowout wins by any stretch of the imagination right, right but you're going unopposed this cycle so so yeah. uh, you know that that's kind of nice i guess for you uh compared to a lot of your, your your friends up there in frankfurt so um you know a little bit about how you're campaigning this cycle without an opponent where you have to get to know a new district at the same time uh that you're not necessarily facing um you know partisan opposition so tell us a little bit about how you've um, been trying to connect with new voters. Uh, th- well, this I haven't around. yet because number one, you know, as the weeks went by, it became more and more likely that the new maps are going to stick. Um, and then just getting through session. So once we get through session, my intent is to do a mailing, you know, to introduce myself to the to the precincts where I would be a new representative for them. And then over the course of between now and the election, not really because I need the votes, but just because I want the community to know who I am and, you know, to be able to reach out to me to do a series of meet and greet type things. Um, That's my plan right now. I don't really have major plans to to do a lot of canvassing this year. Um, I'd be more likely to be out and canvassing for some of my colleagues, you know, who, who might have some tight races when we get close to November. Um, I also point of personal privilege after the last couple of years, I'm probably going to take a vacation. (laughs) We did, we did sneak away to the beach with my family last year for a week. And my sister lives in London and I'm seriously considering, you know, going to see her. So, you know, but then I'm an active teacher as well. So I'll finish out the school year once um, session ends or when we go into the veto period, I go back to the classroom and then we'll finish up school in, in the end of May. And then between all of the different things I want to do policy wise, one of my goals for the summer is to get to know more parts of Kentucky. You know, I represent District 32, but I'm also a state representative in Kentucky. And to understand the needs in Appalachia and, you know, different the Western Kentucky, different parts of the state, um, I'm hopefully going to do a couple of, you know, visits to different areas in the, in, in the state. But then, you know, we start school again and then another year, another session. So... <laughs> Yeah. Well, uh, Jasmine, I believe, is one of your newest constituents. If the so that's uh, yeah, I've been I've been redistricted to you. (laughs) I'm excited. Well, I might have to put you on my sign list. I'm going to see because what they did and Robert, you know, this um, they essentially took the more Democratic precincts from Representative Nemus and Representative Fleming. Mm-hmm. I'm in them all. Nemesis district now. <laughs> squished them all into me and then gave them some of my more Republicans. So, you know, between um, maybe Margaret Plattner and Maria Sorolis's sign group, 
I might try to get some signs out, um, you know, just so people connect the name to a mm-hmm. person. So, Well, before we let you go, we wanted to talk about um, some other legislation that you sponsored. So you've sponsored several pieces of legislation around a broad range of topics like education, animal protection, um, maternal health, rights of unhoused folks and others. And we have seen a few Democratic bills start moving their way through the legislative process the past few weeks. Do you think that any of your bills have a chance of passing this year? Um, I, I don't anticipate any of mine at this point will. But what's very encouraging is similar bills um, with other parts of what I had filed have passed. So a real big one was a bill. I have a bill on the link between interpersonal violence and animal violence. And we just, I think it was last week, passed a bill that was about that. Now, my bill went a little further and it had first responder training within the bill. You know, but the fact that a link bill passed is amazing because then I can build on that with that sponsor and with mm-hmm. my advocates within, you know, the the first, the FOP was like, okay, what's going on in your bill? Let us take a look at it um, so that we can get something through to, to get those needs. So that's really good. You know, I do appreciate that you're grateful that something passed, even though, you know, it couldn't be a Democratic sponsored bill and that you're you're going to continue to work with them to get the language that you want and and get the bills you want next time with that Republican sponsor. Cause not, not everyone like takes that same approach to legislating, I think. And so I, that's really encouraging to me um, that you're still able to get some of your priorities done, even if your name can't be the chief sponsor on the bill. Yeah. Um, It's not really important to me. Now I did have a bill that went through the house last year and that was very mm -hmm. exciting. That was my mental health flag. And so the Senate wouldn't touch it. You know, we don't do flags. All right. Well, you need to do flags, but um, <laughs> this one at least. And then I kind of went to the spawn, um, Kim Mosier again this year. And I was like, well, let's do the flag again. She's like, again? You know, and it's like, okay, I'll give it some time. I think one thing that might have a real good chance when, well, you know, everything kind of comes together. And right now we're really trying to look at, teacher teacher recruitment, teacher retention for a looming teacher shortage. And so just today I started preparing um, a resolution or a concurrent resolution to do a task force on teacher retention, retention and recruitment. Um, Kim Mosier filed one yesterday or yesterday, I believe, on um, healthcare workers, you know, so a lot of the things that, oh my gosh, the read to succeed bill. So I was primary co-sponsor on HB 226. Rep Tipton was the primary sponsor. And that's the one where we do um, training for K through one teachers and teaching reading. And I was very integral to that. Um, And they actually, I mean, it was amazing. So Rep Tipton and Senator West both said, hey, Rep Bojanowski, thanks so much for all your work you did on it. So, you know, I'm working. It doesn't matter to me that my name is yeah. first on the list. Good. Yeah. It's good that, you know, the thing, the priorities 
are getting passed. Yeah. But <laughs> I also some of the good ones at least. Don't have a problem with putting an amendment on a bill with my name on it that just signals to the public this is a concern. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, you know, you, you don't have a campaign this year, but you are working on important legislation. And you did mention you wanted to work to, you know, introduce yourself to your new constituents and everything. And, you know, you're, you're connected with other uh, legislators who are trying to defend their seats. So if anybody wants to get in touch with you, um, you know, maybe they're a new constituent. Or maybe they're just a big fan of what you have to do uh, or what you're working on. Uh, how, how can they get in contact with you? Okay. I mean, there's several ways. So I do have a Twitter account, um, at tina for kentucky um, and my pay- Facebook page is the same at Tina for Kentucky. Um, they can send me an email at um, tina.bojanowski um, at lrc.ky.gov. Um, and then any of those vehicles um, can get in touch with me, send me a Facebook friend thing. And as long as they don't look like a single guy from California or something who has no in common friends, most of the time I, I do accept all like Facebook friend invites too, you know, um, but send me an, send me an email. And, you know, for some constituents, I've had a couple constituents and I just invite them over and we sit down, we have a long conversation. And from that, you know, we can talk about what their concerns are. Um, Several constituents that go back and forth on policy things. Um, So I am more than happy to hear from, um, from anyone who's interested. You know, I won't have an official campaign this year. We had a very formal structured set things, Um, But I certainly, you know, can direct people to campaigns that will need support um, once we get to that point. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. You are welcome. Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we're part of the Demcast network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. And we will see you next week.